As much talk as there is about iPhones and iPads and other types of things, I was struck and, and curious when I saw a guy on a plane a few months ago and he had a t-shirt on and it simply said across the chest, I tired. And underneath it, it said, I tired, there's an app for that. Now, I wish there was an app for that. I would download it in a heartbeat. Or maybe if there was a nap that you could take, that would be awesome too, but there is neither of those. And yet, I think as Americans, we oftentimes do find ourselves to be running harder and getting further behind, so we're tired. Maybe that's at work. Maybe physically we're tired, we're sleep deprived, as statistics would show us. Maybe it has to do with relationships. We're trying and trying and trying, and it seems like there's more and more conflict. Maybe even spiritually, we say, the harder I try, the more God seems distant. I'm just tired. Well, what's the result? I mean, what's, what's the way beyond that? There is a rest that we need to enter into, and it can be well documented in many different places. Even in the business community, the Wall Street Journal and others place, Forbes magazine said this, you can only work so hard and do so much in a day, everybody needs to rest and recharge, for your productivity requires rest. And yet, how many of us feel guilty when we rest? There was a book a number of years ago called, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. And sometimes there's something hardwired within us that does make us feel guilty when we take time away, like we're not being productive, we're not doing what we should be doing, we ought to be doing more. And I don't know where that comes from, but it's ever there. And that can create a spiritual tiredness as well, a spiritual fatigue. John Ortberg wrote in his book, Soul Keeping, which is one of his more recent books, and I would recommend it to any of you to read. Soul Keeping has to do with taking care of that part of who we really are beyond our body and not the part of eternal that will go to be with Jesus. That's more spirit, the soul, the person. This is who we are, not, the, not what we do. And how do we take care of that? And how can we tell when we're fatigued, tired, at our soul, at the core of our being. Here's some of the questions he asks as some of the indicators of soul fatigue being somewhat subtle. He says this, things seem to bother you more than they should. Are you irritable? Beyond the heat? Do things get on your nerves and you should be able to take them in stride? You might be soul fatigued. It's hard to make up your mind even about simple decisions. Impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave are harder to resist than they otherwise would be. If that's true in any of those, then you may be soul fatigued. You're more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that leave you with high long-term costs. You're not thinking clearly about the end result. Your judgment is suffering. You have less courage. <clears throat> Jenny, you'll appreciate this being a Greenwood Packer fan, but the legendary coach Vince Lombardi used to say this, fatigue makes cowards out of us all. Think about it. When you're tired, are you more likely to charge that hill to accomplish that task? The answer is no. When we're fatigued, we're fearful. We're less courageous. Ortberg goes on to say, the soul is not well when we rush so much. If it does not get the rest it needs, it becomes fatigued. That's what we're talking about today. There is a time and there's a season for everything. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, 
Pastor Matt and Ivory spoke last week about the need for service as one of the rhythms of grace, and that's absolutely correct. But there's just as certainly also a rhythm for rest in the midst of our activity, and if we don't pay attention to that, we'll become less productive, less focused, less intentional, and it will not work. We'll get worn out in the process. That's what we're going to talk about today is a rhythm of rest. Joshua Becker, who I was not familiar with before researching for this message, is author of a book, The More of Less, and, and that's a, a best-selling Wall Street Journal book. Listen to what he has to say. Physicians, athletes, philosophers, poets, religious leaders, and corporate leaders all tell us the same thing. Take time to rest. It's absolutely essential for a balanced, healthy life. Yet when you ask people in today's frenzied culture if they intentionally set aside time for rest, most will tell you they're too busy. Even fewer would say they set aside any concentrated time, meaning 12 to 24 hours for rest. There are just too many things to get done, too many demands, too many responsibilities, too many bills, and too much urgency. Nobody can afford to waste time resting in today's results-oriented society. Unfortunately, the hectic pace is causing damage to our quality of life. We are destroying every sense of our being, <clears throat> body, mind, and soul. There is a reason we run faster and work harder, but only fall further behind. Our lives have become too full and too out of balance. Somewhere along the way, we lost the essential practice of concentrated rest. But we would be wise to reclaim the practice of resting at least one day a week. Now, Joshua Becker has a lot of wisdom in what he says, but that's not original with him. Actually, the scriptures, beginning in the Older Testament and the example of Jesus, we see this practice, this principle, as one of those rhythms of grace. It's one of the things that's so important to saying longevity and effectiveness and productivity. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to an example out of the life of Jesus. And what we're going to find from this passage in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, is that Jesus regularly took time to get away to be with God, especially to pray. Jesus did that as a pattern of his life. Jesus, God in the flesh, understand he never ever ceased to be God. But in the flesh, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he got hot when it was too hot outside. He sweated and he needed to rest. And we're gonna see this in this passage. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you want to read along in your copy, that's great. If you've got an app you want to look on or if you want to look on the screen, whichever. Luke 5, 15 through 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Understand what Jesus did. Look at this. There's people coming from all over to hear him preach, to hear him teach the word of God, and to have him heal their diseases. And the more he did that, the more people crushed around him. There were so many needs and so little time. He only had three years. Only three years, and Jesus knew that. So what did he do? 
Bring them in, bring them in. There's more than Mary. Let's bring it on. He did not do that. He regularly took a time out. And he didn't just do it to take a nap. He did it to get away, to spend time with his father, to spend time in prayer, to spend time in reflection, to spend time in understanding the truest priorities of life. And that was a renewal and a recharging in his life. If Jesus needed and did that, who are we to think? The old phrase, if it is to be, it's up to me. Does that not belie our lack of confidence in God to work even while we're asleep, as the psalmist says? No, it's wisdom. It's not weakness. It's not laziness. It's nothing to be guilty about. Pastor Caleb and his, his family are gone essentially for the month of July, so don't try calling them. Okay? They need that break. I know of no one that works harder than Caleb does. And I know of no one that's going to have more on his plate when he gets back here than he does. They need a break. There is wisdom in them taking this time. Pray for them. Pray for them there's renewal. Pray for them there's recharging of those batteries because we depend upon their, their leadership and their involvement here. But it's like Jesus did. We also see that not only do we need to do that on a regular basis, it's further defined in Scripture as at least a day a week. In the Older Testament, especially in the Ten Commandments, God, through Moses, wrote this down for his people. And though this this, this, uh, pattern is not necessarily repeated in the New Testament, the principle certainly is. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or even the sojourner, the guest who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, for the Jewish hearer, Sabbath means from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. So essentially, Saturday is their Sabbath. For those of us that are Christ followers since the resurrection of Jesus, the church has predominantly met on Sunday, calling this the Lord's day, meaning the day of his resurrection. And so there's a different shift in focus But whether it's Saturday, whether it's Sunday, the issue is, is there a time set aside? You see, God designed it this way. He set an example this way. And he also designed us to need to take a break like that, probably to remind us of our dependence upon him. That while we rest, he continues to work. Other authors have looked at this. Gordon MacDonald wrote a book years ago entitled Ordering Your World, and it really, Ordering Your Private World, it was very influential in my life. I want you to listen to these two paragraphs. He says, does God need to rest? Of course not. But did God choose to rest? Yes. Why? Because God subjected creation to a rhythm of rest and work that he revealed by observing that rhythm himself as a precedent for everyone else. In this way, he showed us a key to order in our private worlds. This rest was not meant to be a luxury, but rather a necessity for those who want to have growth and maturity. 
Since we have not understood that rest is a necessity, we have perverted its meaning, substituting for the rest that God first demonstrated things that we call leisure or amusement. These things do not bring any order at all to the private world. Leisure and amusement may be enjoyable, but they are to the private world of the individual like cotton candy to the digestive system. They provide a momentary lift, but they will not last. I am not by any means being critical of the pursuit of fun-filled moments, of diversion, of laughter, of recreation. I am simply proposing that these alone will not restore the soul in the way that we crave. Although they may provide a sort of momentary rest for the body, they will not satisfy the deep need for rest within the private world. You see, God designed us to need physical rest and to set that aside, but there's also a spiritual and personal rest to reflect upon God, to reflect upon who He is. And that's a part of when we worship, whether it's collectively or corporately crowded together, or whether it's in a smaller group, or whether it's as an individual, we need to focus upon Him and allow Him to retool our thinking as well as to renew our souls. You remember the guy that I mentioned at the first, <clears throat> this Joshua Becker? He gives several reasons why he recommends doing a day, a week of rest. Listen to what he says as to why we would be wise to reclaim the practice of resting one day a week. And I don't know what his faith basis is. I know that he has a faith in God. Uh, I'm not sure where it goes beyond that from what I have read but his faith in God is an important part of his life. But listen to the principle he's speaking of from Scripture. If we were to do that, set aside a day a week to rest and to be renewed, it would produce a healthier body. There's a physiological, physical benefit to taking that day of rest where we separate from the normal routines of life. He says rest is as important as the water we drink. Secondly, it would produce less stress or it would manage the stress we have. Since stress is the perception that the situations we're facing are greater than the resources we have to deal with them, resources such as time, energy, ability, and even help from others, concentrated rest reduces the demands of the situation and reduces stress by increasing our resources, particularly our energy. It also creates deeper relationships. If we were to take a break a Sabbath, if you were, from electronics, television, radio, phones, just for the meal and talk with each other. Would it produce deeper relationships? If we were to take the time to take a break and focus on those people that are most important in our lives, would it not produce deeper relationships? Set those times apart. It also provides an opportunity for reflection in order to evaluate our lives, to identify our values, and to determine if our life is being lived according to those values. It provides balance. It will force us to have an identity outside of our occupation. Rather than defending, defining life by what you do, you can begin to define it by who you really are. You know, I, I read this years ago. I don't know who said it, but it, it's just stuck with me. It said, Americans tend to worship our work. We tend to play, work at our play, and we tend to play at our worship. 
And I think all three of those speak to this. We tend to worship our work because that's where we think our identity is. That's where we think really worth and value is measured. So we worship our work. And we say, well, I need to get out and play. But we work at our play. We come back even from our recreation tireder than we went in. And we play at our worship. It's like, this is, okay, well, whatever. It's a great idea if I can get around to it. But is it a priority? No, this is, provides balance in life. It also produces increased productivity. Just like resting physical muscles allows the opportunity to rejuvenate, it leads to greater physical success. Providing our minds with rest provides the opportunity to refocus and rejuvenate. More work is not better work. Smarter work is better work. And then the last one he mentions is provides a reserve for life's emergencies. He's saying crisis hits everybody. There are seasons in life where it's pedal to the metal. <clears throat> you got to get it on. You got to get it done. There's, 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 there's deadlines. There's this that has to happen. If we stay a pattern of providing a day a week, it provides a reserve for those times when there's crisis and we can move through those. These are all some of the things that <clears throat> are there. And I want to tell you, when I looked at history, I'm thinking in terms of a guy, and I've mentioned his name before to you, and you probably have read it somewhere else. His name is William Wilberforce. He was a, a, a British politician in the early 1800s. And he's best known for the fact that God used him among the British focus in Parliament to lead the, the charge all of his life for the eradication of slavery throughout the British Empire. And God used him to accomplish that, an amazing thing. But do you realize that there was, it almost didn't happen? It almost didn't happen because there was a guy that came in power by the name of Lord Addington in 1801, and he wanted William Force to be a part of his, his cabinet. And he went after him hard, and Wilberforce really wanted it. It was a plum position, and his mind was occupied by this, and he thought about it at night when he went to sleep, and it began to be the focus of his life. Then, according to Garth Lane, who's a noted biographer of William Wilberforce, he said the thoughts of this so preoccupied him, he so anxiously wanted it that it was crippling his spirit and was distracting him from the primary focus that he had given himself to that had not yet been accomplished. The answer, he said, was this, Sunday was the cure meaning that one day a week for him, it was Sunday. He took time to stop, to worship, to be refocused, to get a stock of what was really life. And this comes from the, the words of William Wilberforce's diary himself. And I quote, Blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation wherein earthly things assume their true size, and my ambition is stunted. What a great perspective. I'm so glad that he made this a priority, and I think history was changed as a result of the renewal that came in his life as a result of that. There's another piece to all of this that's also in the life of Jesus, and there's a tendency, though, that we have as people to take any religious activity and turn it into an end in itself. In other words, we begin to worship the form, not the reason, behind it. And the Pharisees did exactly this. I'm going to read from Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. 
And this is going to tell us that it is important for us to establish times for sabbatical or times for rest or times for renewal or times for worship. I'm using those terms somewhat synonymously. But we need to remember that the focus is on Jesus, that Jesus is to be the center of it all, that the worship, the sabbatical, the rest is a means to a greater end of loving Jesus more deeply and understanding his love for us. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat them. But when the Pharisees saw it, the Pharisees were, of course, those who were steeped in the Mosaic and the rabbinic laws and traditions. They said to him, look, your, dis look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful to him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I'll tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's about Jesus. It's not about the form. It's about Jesus. It's not about doing things to please God, and so I will elevate my position in his mind and his heart. It's about Jesus. And that's going to look different for different ones. Let's not be guilty of being judgmental. Jesus and his disciples go through the grain field, and they're hungry. So what do they do? They take, like we used to do when we would walk through fields with Boy Scouts on a hike, we'd take a hand of wheat or some other kernel and rub them between your hand blow away the, the husk that's there and pop them in your mouth and eat them. It's great. The Pharisees didn't think so. They said, what your disciples are doing when you do that, stop them. That, that's not lawful on the Sabbath. What'd they mean? Well, when they would pluck the grain, they were harvest, they were reaping. When they would do like this and blow away the husk, they were winnowing. When they would then put it in their mouth, they were harvesting. What? You see, what the Pharisees did is constantly came after Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. And I want to be clear, Jesus never broke God's Sabbath, ever. He did break the rabbinic traditions. What the rabbis would do and the Pharisees would do is they would say, okay, here is the list of the core. Here's the law. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But then they would come and they would build barriers or hedges or fences, so to speak, around it, which were not mandated by God, but were part of their religious tradition. And it would be things like this, because God says, don't work on the Sabbath. You can't even pick up an instrument of work. You can't pick up a hammer. You can't pick up a saw. You can't pick up a rake. You can't even pick up a pen or a pencil, because those are implements of work and you would be doing work. That's why when the person that was healed of Jesus and he said, pick up your bed and walk, they got all over his case because said, you can't do that work like you're taking up a load to take it to market. He wasn't, he was just moving his bed from one place to another. They had all these different things to safeguard the law, but they elevated their traditions to the level of God and that's legalism, that's religion. That's not what God spoke of.
That's not what Jesus spoke of. So Jesus said, you don't get it. Look, even in your own law, when David and his companions were hungry and they came into the temple, then there was food there that was set aside for the priest. They ate it and it was okay because they needed that. They weren't violating the spirit of the law. He also, in other places, when they criticized him about healing someone on the Sabbath, like in the very next chapter, it says Jesus had gone, or the very next paragraph, Jesus went to the synagogue. He saw a man with a, a withered hand and he healed the man's hand. They got all over his case for working on the Sabbath for healing this man. Jesus said things to them like, look, even in your own law, if you have a donkey or an ox that falls into a ditch, does not the law provide out of humanitarian and grace and compassion to bring that animal out of the ditch? Doesn't this person have greater worth than that animal? That's why Jesus said, you don't understand what it means to say, I don't desire your specific meticulous sacrifice with your heart. It's about Jesus. Anything that goes beyond that and around that is not true worship. It's not true Sabbath rest. It should be heart and parcel. You know, a friend of mine, uh, John Delhousay, used to live up here. He and his wife Tiffany were part of this fellowship till they moved down to Central Phoenix and they actually live in the same neighborhood where Emily and I live now. And so there are a lot of Jewish people in our community. And John, being a seminary professor also, I love the fact that he's reached out to build relationships with some of the Jewish people in the community. And one day, after having spent some time, he gets a knock on the door, and one of his Jewish neighbors came over and said, can you come to my house? I have, I have something I need for you to do. What it was was that this happened on their Sabbath, and they had a whole bunch of people in after Sabbath school. And I know you find this hard to believe, but in the summer it gets hot around here. And this was the summertime, and one of the kids had thrown something. It hit the air conditioner uh, thermostat, and the AC went off. Well, according to his belief, he couldn't push the button because that would be doing work on the Sabbath to get the air back on. So he came next door and asked John to come and do it for him. Now that was his belief, and I'm not gonna fault him for that, but do you see the mindset it still stays with us today? And I love the fact that John had a good enough relationship that he called and asked, and he came over. We wanna move beyond that as Christ followers. We wanna honor the Sabbath day, but we wanna honor the principle that's there, and it means keeping Jesus center in the focus. Whether it's as we gather together here to worship, whether we're doing it on our own, whether we're some incredible place of worship like the Grand Canyon or out under the stars and, and that renewal of our heart and our spirit and our soul is taking place, let's keep Jesus center in all of that because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Dallas Willard wrote this in the spirit of the disciplines. Uh, honestly, this whole thing about rhythms of grace, we didn't want to call it spiritual disciplines because that sounds so like, I don't want to go there. And Richard Foster wrote a book years ago called uh, Spiritual Disciplines or the practice, I don't know. I, don't, I read the book, but I don't like what it was calling me to do. Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, helped me to understand it and put it together better. And he basically compares the spiritual disciplines or these rhythms of grace that we're talking about to, to athletic practices. In other words, training ourselves to be disciplined enough to focus. I love that, I get that. But he comes back and says it's about Jesus. 
Listen to what he says. Practically speaking, the Christian's worship is the most profitable when it is centered upon Jesus Christ and goes through him to God. When we worship, we fill our minds and hearts with wonder at him, the detailed actions and words of his earthly life, his trial and death on the cross, his resurrection reality, and his work as ascended intercessor. As we worship in this way, our lives are filled with his goodness, which is also God's. Isn't that what the end result is? To be shaped and to become more like him. You know, I'm going to ask Nicholas Mwangi and our worship team if they would come up here because we want to go into a time of reflection in conclusion of the message and as a part of our ongoing worship of partaking of the Lord's table. Uh, Nicholas is going to come and he's going to tell us how God designed something for us that we would remember the work of Christ. So we keep this central. It's not about passing bread or cup. It has to do with who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And as we reflect upon this, as you even hold those elements, as you remember, as you listen to what Nicholas is going to say, which he said so well first hour, let's let our minds go to who Jesus is, what he did, how much he loved us, and what great gift it is for us in him. Nicholas, would you lead us?